WRIR 97.3 FM, Richmond's independent radio. This is The Creative Habit, where we bring you great stories about culture, creativity, and innovation. I'm Paige Goodpasture. This week, I talked with Houston-based artist Natasha Bowden. As part of the Quirk Plus VizArts Artist Residency Program, Natasha has been in Richmond since the beginning of January, living at Quirk Hotel and creating an installation for an exhibition of her work at the Visual Arts Center that opens tomorrow night. Natasha grew up in coastal Maine, and love of the rhythms and patterns of nature courses through her work. But she's also inspired by the texts of surrealist and magical realist writers. She explores the idea of taking what's familiar, altering it in her work just enough to distance the viewer from it, and using the resulting ambiguity to open minds to new ways of looking. I was lucky to get to talk with Natasha as she was in the process of making a large-scale installation that now fully occupies the largest gallery at VizArts. So Natasha, you are here in Richmond Mm -hmm. doing a piece for the Visual Arts Center of Richmond, and your show is on view through February and even into March, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. It's great to have the perspective of of watching someone create Mm -hmm. something for a specific space, and you really understand or begin to understand the process of creating that work a little bit more. You work in in a multimedia way with lots of different materials, yeah. and your work is very layered, and it's in that space where you can't call you a painter or a sculptor mm-hmm. or a graphic artist or any of those. You're really all of those together. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about your process and your materials. Sure. One definition doesn't fit so so well for me. I kind of have my hands in everything, like you said. The show will have actually like representations of a lot of different kinds of work that I make. So there'll be some straightforward drawing, which I've always loved to draw even since I was a kid. And then there'll be a lot of collage-based work, some printmaking thrown in, and then the large-scale installation, which is sort of an amalgamation of painting, sculpture, collage, drawing. It's kind of all, (laughs) they're all thrown in the pot. And I've been working with cut paper for a while now. When I was starting to pursue art, I was a more traditional painter. And actually what led me to cut paper eventually was that I started to cut up my paintings. I was kind of frustrated with the edge of a canvas. And so I just literally started to chop them up. And that's what led me organically to paper. And I've been using paper ever since. So probably about 10, 15 years now. And what I love about the material quality of paper, I mean, well, there's a lot of things to love about it, but one thing is that it's kind of infinitely mutatable, especially with the installation work. You know, I really want the piece to kind of fully consume and occupy the space, so paper has that ability to grow and shrink according to its container. And if something doesn't work, I can always cut it up and reassemble it back into something else. So there's like a nice kind of recycling that happens, a nice embracing of one's mistakes that the material allows. So yeah, the show will be a lot of a lot of paper in different shapes, sizes, and forms. The piece that you're creating here at VizArts is 
not finished. Yes. We're looking at it right now, <laughs> yeah. and it's not finished, and it's still uh, a little over a week yeah. before the show opens, but it is is definitely taken form, and it takes up the whole wall, the whole biggest, longest wall in the gallery, plus some, and it's got a great sort of graphic quality, but as well, uh, I would call it kind of, it's botanical for sure and multi-layered, which doesn't really convey very well in pictures. So I would really encourage people to come and see it in person because it has a great dimensionality that doesn't register in pictures. So how do you start with something like this? You have a, a certain sensibility. Your work has mm -hmm. a, a signature, I would say. Mm -hmm. and, and this is consistent with that. What is your inspiration? to begin with? What are the things that you look to mm -hmm. when you start to think about a new piece? I would say that most often a new piece um, actually starts with a text, a textual source. In a lot of my past work, text has actually been another material that goes into the work. So literally I sit down with a found piece of text and then write, transcribe that work into my drawing. And there'll be some drawings in the show that actually do have text embedded in them. Approaching the Vizart show, I had been using a couple texts in previous work. Uh, one was a short story by Italo Calvino called Distance of the Moon, which is a beautiful story about kind of reimagining our relationship to the moon in, in sort of a um, surreal, maybe magical realist sort of way. So that story is embedded in some of the moon drawings that will be on view here in the show. And then I was also reading at the time uh, another writer, Bruno Scholz, who wrote some really amazing short stories, one of which is called Spring, uh, that is sort of the kind of seed for the installation in a way. Sometimes the words of the text actually make their way literally into the work. I haven't decided yet if that's going to happen in this piece, but definitely his story is kind of a a jumping off point. So it often starts with writing. Uh, I've always had an interest in storytelling. So when you start, when, you, when you're compelled by mm -hmm. a piece of writing, mm -hmm. is it the words, the letters, the, the visual impact of the word on the page? Is it the ideas in sure. the story? Is it both? What yeah. you know? What draws you? Your work has such a graphic quality. I can you know definitely yeah. see how the actual graphic nature of the words on the page yeah. come into play. Mm -hmm. It's a good question. I, I think it depends on the work, but there's a couple different things. I've been drawn to writers who I think have perhaps a more experimental approach to how words function on a page. The very first work that I made with text used uh, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland as a jumping off point. And I've also done a lot of work with Jorge Borges poems and Walt Whitman. I'm also drawn to writers who I think there's a particular pattern and rhythm to their writing that in a way I'm trying to come up with some sort of visual equivalent for. And even looking to like more experimental literary movements like surrealist automatic writing or the beat cut up poetry. This idea of like getting away from a text that's always read left to right, concisely and clearly printed on a page. I'm more interested in kind of channeling this new visual incantation of text that we don't often get an experience to see in our day to day. Because usually we look at text for 
communication. You know, we want to read it to understand it. And I'm kind of more interested in a messier notion of how to deal with um, with language and with words. So that's that's been a lot of my interest. And then sometimes I get interested for content, obviously. I mean, you can't totally avoid that element also. I think I try to stay away from having the work act like an illustration of the text. Sometimes it kind of veers in that direction, and I would say that maybe this one is heading that way. But I like when the relationship between the text and the work is a little bit more complicated and a little bit more ambiguous. If you're just joining us, this is The Creative Habit on WRIR 97.3 FM, Richmond's Independent Radio. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and I'm talking with artist Natasha Bowden about how texts are often the initial inspiration for her work. So once you have been drawn to a text Mm -hmm. and start to feel like maybe that might be the inspiration for a visual piece... Mm -hmm then what is the next step for you? Where do you start to turn that into a purely visual experience? Yeah, so then usually what happens is I I start to look for what kind of pattern I want to deal with, and I look to a lot of source imagery for that. A lot of past patterns have come from looking at textile design. This particular piece I'm looking at a lot of old botanical drawings from like the 1800s and earlier. Part of what draws me to those sources is just their own visual quality. But I have to say that a thread that's been running in my work for a long time now has been looking specifically at other artists and other makers' ideas um, or renditions of the natural world. And so I've been collecting these images in my studio for a long time now. So I try to get an idea of what kind of pattern I might want to start with. And in this case, I started with actually a really simple black and white pattern that I was actually, uh, I, I started to look at a lot of medical illustration too, which is kind of new for me, like cellular drawings and drawings of, you know, different processes happening inside the body and then kind of merging that with these botanical drawings. And the, the funny thing, too, about that is that you start to look at all these images and you realize that those patterns are eerily similar <laughs> in a lot of ways. After I have some initial patterns to work with, then it's improv after that. Then, it, you know, then it's like getting into a space and getting a feeling for how this thing might grow you know, I usually try to show up with some raw material to start with, and then a lot of it is improv on the spot. I find that if I plan things t- too much, they are bound to fail. The piece that you're working on right now, to me, has a, a almost a musical quality to it. Mm-hmm. Also, it's almost like a mental projection of music or the rhythm of language mm-hmm. or something like that on the wall and and another thing that is so engaging is the the multiple layers mm-hmm. of the piece and they're layered patterns they're layered colors but then they're also layered techniques so the techniques on the lower layers are different than the techniques mm-hmm. on the upper layers so it gives it a real sculptural quality mm-hmm. the the paper stands out from the wall So I would say the material that I'm most familiar with that's present is cut paper. I've been using cut paper for a long time now. And over the years, I have had the desire to get the piece further and further away from the wall. 
And with that ambition, cut paper has turned into my enemy in certain moments. I mean, there's, there's ways that you can push the material, but then if you still want this kind of structural quality, you know, paper wants to bend, it wants to move a certain way. So it's actually led me to figure out how to add new materials to kind of build that structure and, and make the pieces more sculptural. So I've been working now with um, painting on gator board, which is sort of an industrial foam core, really. That lets me bring some pieces way out into space. And what I like about that, too, is that I can paint um, on the gator board through essentially like a giant masking tape, really. So it gives me a really crisp edge that almost looks like it's cut, even though it's painted. So there's sort of through trial and error, I've found these other materials that I think sync up with the cut paper, but are not the cut paper. And in this piece, actually, you don't see it yet, but I'm going to be painting on the floor, too. So the painting or the drawing, whatever you want to call it, will actually come down onto the floor so that as people walk in, they can walk on and in the drawing, which I'm really excited about. I've been trying more and more to get the piece to occupy different surfaces and have kind of a different presence that's not just, um, you know, you kind of walk up to something frontally and experience that way. It becomes like an environment. It sounds like the viewer's experience is also very important to your Mm -hmm. work. Well, I don't like to be heavy-handed to my viewer. In fact, for that reason, sometimes I've been hesitant to talk about the textual influences. I've noticed that in the past, sometimes when someone knows there's a text involved, they have a tendency to kind of fixate on that element, and then the other, the potential other meanings of the work get kind of closed off or those doors get shut. So I'm kind of try to be careful about giving the viewer enough space so that they can come in and experience it any way they want to. And that if they pay attention or spend more time with the work, that like the work itself, there are layers that can be peeled back and exposed in terms of meaning. But I have been thinking about what's the takeaway from the work that I'm making. And if I had to put any kind of name to it, all of the work is inspired by nature. It's all kind of organic in how it's made and even, you know, the image that it creates in the end. So I think, in a way, I'm trying to draw attention back to the natural world, especially at a time where I feel like some of us may have lost touch with our relationship to the world around us. So kind of paying attention to the natural world, seeing it as a space for imagination, which, you know, if you look through the history of art making, it always has been a wonderful metaphor for artists and a wonderful place for them to explore. So bringing attention back to those things and and also kind of emphasizing this notion of transformation that, you know, the installation itself has been transforming over the month that I've been here. Even when it's finished, hopefully it has this sense that it's still, you're catching something kind of mid-movement. And I think that that notion sort of symbolically is really important to all the work that nothing really be fixed in time and space, but kind of has the potential to be read a multitude of ways and interpreted. You know, one form might look like something, but then you look at it from another angle and then it becomes something else. So that there's this notion of like a flexibility and a a mutation that happens when you look at the work. Mm -hmm. 
ultimately I'm happy for people to come in and take away whatever they want from it. But I think for me, those are kind of the important parts of the work when I'm doing the making. For this piece, what it is now and what I envision it will be in the when it's completed, you know, it, it the sculptural quality of it really lends itself to that variation in perspective, mm -hmm. which is the way that nature is. You right. know, you're underneath right. a tree and it looks different than the, when you're way back far away from it. Right. And then the way that you're describing how people will be able to actually enter into the piece because part of it will be on the mm -hmm. floor and and that seems to be something to also try to draw people into mm -hmm. the experience more mm -hmm. and trigger those experiences and connections. Yeah, yeah. And I think art viewing can be very passive depending on what is being viewed. And what I like about this idea of kind of occupying and creating this immersive environment is that you can't you can't really get out of it even if you wanted to. You kind of get stuck in it almost. And and so I like that that implicates the viewer in this slightly more aggressive manner than just walking up to a work on a wall and being able to walk away very easily. That brings me back to Alice in Wonderland and sure. to Borges and to sure. some of those writers that you have been inspired by in the past where part of the work is that the, the person in the story is stuck mm -hmm. in an experience. For sure. for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean... You know, Alice herself can't even count on her own, like the size of her own body. I mean, everything is kind of changing rapidly, dramatically, you know, whether or not she wants it to. And, and, and the same with Borges, too. I mean, often all of a lot of his characters are in this kind of loop that they can't exit. So, yeah, that's a nice parallel to those stories for sure. So your work is also really beautiful and, you know, art is not always beautiful and that's not always important to an artist but mm -hmm. it seems from looking at it that that is something that you are drawn to is that something that you that you own that, that has always been a part of your work that's important to your work or is it just something that just it just happens it's a good question um i think that my work when i was a little younger was a little grimier and i kind of I like that about it. Definitely in the in the prints that you'll see in the show, there is a, a roughness to them that I think is a little different from some of the more delicate looking work. The beauty aspect, it's funny. I mean, I, I'm definitely drawn to graceful marks. Maybe that's a better word. Yes, it's very graceful. Yeah, but I think the way that I've tried to kind of counterbalance that is that, you know, often when people think about cut paper, they think of very fragile, very decorative work. Blowing it up to the scale that I'm dealing with here and also just the way that I make it, there's really, there's nothing precious about it. It gets ripped, you know, it gets ripped all the time. I mend it so that it, it kind of imbues back into it this aggressive quality mm -hmm. that I think counterbalances the beauty of it. Not that I'm I'm scared or unwilling to make something beautiful, but I think that it's important for me to counterbalance that so that it can be appreciated on a couple different levels, that it's not just pretty, but has a little teeth. And weight yeah. and presence. Yeah. And if you're just tuning in, this is The Creative Habit, and I'm Paige Goodpasture. I'm talking with artist Natasha Bowden about what drew her to using cut paper in her work and what she loves about the process of making. 
So when you first started out and you first began mm -hmm. being an artist, however that happened for you, <laughs> did you imagine that part of that would be also doing so much construction? I always wonder about that because uh -huh. it seems like every artist gets to a point in their career where they've got to know about everything in the hardware store. Right. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I'm still in the process of learning everything in the hardware store. I've definitely picked up some new tips since I've been in Richmond, for sure. I've always loved making. There's a lot of different ways to be an artist, but I've always been a studio-focused artist. There's more construction elements than there were in the beginning, but, I mean, it breaks up my studio habits in a good way. Um, you get familiar with certain materials, and then I think you can kind of get a little bogged down in the habits that form out of that. And so introducing new materials has been good because it keeps me on my toes. I've always liked labor, too, so for better or worse, um, haven't really found a way outside of that, but I, I also not sure that I would want to. I kind of like that a lot of the process is um, repetitive and with that meditative in its own way. And construction is fun, you know, not knowing how to do something is kind of exciting. So I like that about it. And do you here or at home in Houston, do you work with an assistant? I don't. I've thought about it. I'm thinking about it right now <laughs> as, I'm, as my deadline is fast approaching. The thing that has kind of held me back from that is not any kind of stigma towards using an assistant, but because a lot of what I do is totally intuitive, I don't know what I'm doing until I'm literally doing it. It's very hard for me to figure out how to communicate that to another person. Mm -hmm. I actually think it would take a lot of work to figure out how to use an assistant, which at some point I, you know, I very well may have to do. But I, but I also, I think I might be a little bit of a control freak and want to do everything myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that might be kind of some kind of New England vibe <laughs> that I have in my blood. As I look at your work, I, it has a flow mm -hmm. to it that is inspired, I'm sure, by the by the writings that that are in your mind as mm -hmm. you're creating these pieces and by the natural um, inspirations, but also it has sort of an, a watery feel to yeah, it. Sure. And maybe that's the mainer in you. Yeah, it might be. It might be. Uh, my family, my mom's side of the family are all fishermen. I spent a lot of time on the water as a kid. I did a little fishing after college before I decided that I did not want that to be my career path. So I think definitely that that landscape has made its way into my work subconsciously at first, and now it just won't leave. So for sure, yeah, yeah. What is the title of the show? <laughs> the title of the show is Lunar Spring. It's sort of a hint to the textual sources that are driving the work. The Calvino story that I mentioned in the beginning, um, Distance of the Moon, and then the Scholl story called Spring. And what I like about it is that it, it's, it's not, it has the trappings of feeling like a scientific term, but it is not. So I think that that, in a way, is kind of a nice foil for looking at the work, that there's a natural source, but it's also reimagining that source and seeing it differently and, and kind of opening it up to possibility. So in a way, I've been thinking about this installation, like, you know, if 
springtime were, were to happen on the moon, what form might that take in my mind anyway? And so it's, it's a little bit of a key into the work or maybe just like one nice way to think about it or approach it. Mm-hmm. Things are not exactly as they seem. Yes. You know, you take two familiar words yes. and put them together and they sound familiar at first, but then when you think about it, you think, is that a real thing? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I feel like that goes right back to Alice in Wonderland, mm-hmm. too. And Borges yeah. and yeah. all the other, you yeah. know, many of the, the other texts that have been your inspirations. Yeah. yeah, I hear, again, this idea of taking something that is familiar mm-hmm. and distancing our consciousness from it, I guess, or distancing it from our consciousness and seeing how far you can take that and what response you get. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think in a way it goes back to this notion of ambiguity. Ambiguity is kind of a powerful place. Like when we can't quite name something, when we don't quite understand it, it is, it's full of infinite potential before it gets kind of locked down into being ID'd in some way. That's always been super important to me. I just think, like, for me, it's the kind of worldview that I want to have, you know, operating in the world that I do. I don't want to look at something and think I immediately know it because I recognize it. And so I think, you know, kind of at the the, uh, base level of everything that I do, that's definitely something that's kind of rolling through my mind is um, how, how to create that space for openness and, uh, and potential. I just, I can't wait to see what, what it looks like when it's finished. And thank you for letting me take a sneak peek and interrupt your work day for a little while to talk about your work. Yeah, of course. It's been a pleasure. It's very nice to, to chat about it. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's it for today's show. The Creative Habit can be heard every first and third Thursday of the month at noon on WRIR 97.3 FM, Richmond's Independent Radio. Or you can listen to this and all our past shows on our SoundCloud page or iTunes. And check out our Facebook page for more great stuff about creativity and the arts in Richmond. Our theme music is by David Eastlick. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and thanks for listening.